Wow. Well, I am Rick Murray, Pastor Rick Murray, and I retired uh, 13 months ago, which was the last time I gave a sermon. So, boom, I may go for three or four hours today, so it's all good. And uh, Sam and I became friends when I was still working at the what many people call the Prez, San Inez Valley Prez, and uh, as a, a transitional pastor, really, but the transition took about eight years. Um, and it was a good transition. It's a good church, as is Crossroads. My wife, Kathy, and I have been attending here off and on at 9 o'clock, and I've been online with you. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. really enjoy it. And I enjoy being part of the sermon planning team. Uh, pastor Sam, actually, before I retired, asked me to be part of the team. I asked at one point, I asked Sarah, sorry, Sarah, do you know what t- retirement is? Because I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. And she says, yeah, when you do the same thing you used to do for nothing. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate that. So, uh, but we've enjoyed Crossroads for lots of reasons, and mainly that thing you have on the wall. It's all about Jesus has really been my story as a pastor as well. And the Bible, I preached through books of the Bible 99.9% of the time as a pastor of almost 40 years. And Kathy and I will have been married 45 years in September. Yeah. She obviously is a saint. We call it because she has me. Uh, we have two sons grown. We have two grandsons, four years old, and my oldest boy and his wife, Allie, and my two grandsons, uh, who are four, and let's just say they move. Their motor starts early in the morning. It does not shut off till about 7 when they really don't want to go to bed, but we force them of their own free will to go to bed. Um, I told my son at one point, I said, you know, I'd like to say this is payback, but there wasn't two of you. But they're awesome, and we've enjoyed them. Um, I also have enjoyed the the study as we move into the Gospel of John. But before I get there, I do want to just mention, I did serve several churches, two up in the Bay Area. Um, I always, all my life in college, I wanted to be a teacher of history and coached football. I majored in history. I I mitered in phys ed. I graduated from the other Cal Poly, Cal Poly Pomona, and then ended up going to seminary uh, at Fuller Theological Seminary and became a pastor. But I didn't really want to be one. I wanted to be a football coach and history teacher. The cool thing is that the first church I served, I was the youth pastor, and guess what I got to do? I was the assistant football coach at Carlmont High School in San Mateo, California. Yeah! Yes. You may have noticed that I'm older and wider than most of the communicators up on the platform. Um, I wasn't that wide when I actually played, but I certainly have managed to put on a few, so to speak. Um, But I really enjoyed that first call. It lasted about seven years. And then I moved across the bay to Dublin, California, where I took the first lead pastor role in my tradition. They call it senior pastor. I like the term lead pastor better for a couple of reasons. Um, And we were there six years then we went to central Washington, a place called Yakima. Any know, anybody know where Yakima, Washington is? It's sort of like they took Fresno and put it in the middle of the state of Washington. It's an agribusiness community, and I was at a large church there for almost 14 years, and that's where my boys came of age, uh, and I just had a delightful ministry there, but God called us from there. And each time, each step of the way, my wife and I have both been convinced it's God's call, and we had a call to Austin, Texas, to serve at Covenant Presbyterian Church for just under six years. And then we came here as transitional pastors. So I've kind of been around the lamppost a couple of times. Some might say, well, gee, why don't you stay at one church the whole time? That was always my goal. But I basically couldn't hold down a job. I kept having to move around. Um, God 
takes you where he's going to take you. And I've learned that in many ways. So uh, I'm honored, actually, to be a part of the, now the teaching team. Uh, and I love Tuesdays, the, about two hours, sometimes two and a half hours. It's my favorite part of the week. It's also my wife's favorite part of the week. As a retired person, she says, uh, for better or for worse, but never for lunch. Yeah, think about that for a minute. Um, I've been in her hair a lot, poor thing. Um, but it's been great to have those Tuesdays to talk about sermons, but not to have to worry about preaching them until now. So here we go. We're in John's Gospel. I thought Tyler did a great job uh, talking about John the Baptist and his ministry, identifying Jesus clearly as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's a, that's a packed statement. The Lamb of God, the sacrifice for all of us, the Lamb of God that was sacrificed for our benefit, who takes away the sins, not just yours and mine, but of the world. Eventually, we have a new heaven and a new earth coming. It's pretty awesome to think about that one day we will be in the presence of God more fully than we are today. And by the way, when you come to Christian worship, the thing that separates, I think one of the things that separates Christianity from many, many religions is that we're in the presence of God when we come to worship. Christians do not worship God from a distance. We worship in the presence of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is an awesome mystery. And don't ever try to explain it. I, I tried to explain it once. It was the most boring sermon I, I ever gave. And it was long. And it was hot. It was in Yakima before air conditioning. By the way, guess who convinced the Yakima First Presbyterian Church to get air conditioning? You're, you're going to love this. One of my best friends was John Ecker, who was the Catholic priest at St. Paul's. And we did a pulpit exchange for a number of years. And one of the pulpit exchanges it was hot. He mentioned it. The next week, we had air conditioning. I thought, man, I should have been a priest. What's going on here? That was awesome. But anyway, I digress. By the way, I am famous for rabbit trails in the sermon planning thing. So there was one right there. But at any rate, what we're going to see today is John's version of the calling of the first five disciples. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. One of the things I love about this church is we have Bibles for you. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to get one. Raise your hand and an usher will give you a Bible. You can follow along as I read. If you have your Bible, open it to John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. And again, it's near the back of your Bible, all 66 books. If you go the other way from right to left, you'll find it pretty quickly. I, I like the way Sam says that, so I copied it. John 1, beginning at verse 35. Hold on. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Chances are, by the way, he stayed overnight, and you already notice that John translates things for his mostly Greek-speaking people when he first put this together. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, again, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. 
you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I figure there's some competition between Bethsaida and Nazareth at this point. Where am I? Here we go. Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, I would ask that the words of this preacher's mouth and the meditations of all our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our rock and our redeemer. You alone have the words of eternal life. Amen. Relationship or religion? What's Christianity all about? Is it about relationship? Is it about religion? Is it about maybe a little bit of both? And I'm here to tell you, I think it's mostly about relationship. Relationship we have with Jesus the Christ. Again, it's all about Jesus. And relationship we have with one another through Jesus the Christ. It's what it is all about. And I love the way John introduces the calling of the first five disciples. If you've read the scriptures, you know Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, also have the calling of the first disciples, and they're out fishing, right? You know the story. And they catch a bunch of fish because of Jesus, and then Jesus says what? Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I think that happened after this. I believe John records really the first disciples that are called, including himself, by the way. I believe John is the one who's with Andrew who doesn't mention his name at this point. <laughs> Later on in, in the John's gospel, we will see his name mentioned. He will call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And later on, when he's racing Peter to the tomb, he just happens to mention he gets there first and then waits. And he's also the first one to believe. It's kind of subtle, but I don't think John minds identifying himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Of course, we know Jesus loves all of disciples. In fact, what does John say, the famous, most famous pastor in John's gospel, God so loved the what? The world. He gave his only son. So we know that. So I do believe it was John with Andrew, but he's not mentioned currently. And then, of course, uh, there is Philip and Nathaniel and Peter, all five, the first disciples called. And I believe the way he puts this together tells us that it's about relationship before it's about religion. Now, friends, I have used this passage over the years to talk about the E-word. You know the E-word, right? Evangelism. You can say it that way if you want. 
Presbyterians, you say it that way, they even laugh louder because you know how Presbyterians can be. Um, I am one, so. The reality is, this is about Jesus calling the first disciples to himself. This is about Jesus calling the first disciples to himself. And you notice the words, come and see. And you notice that Jesus spends some time with them. But I do want to talk a little bit about this evangelism word because I think it's helpful. And this text just does tell us, I think, to share the faith and to come alongside people in sharing that faith. And one of the things I've used o over the years is, is called, I call it link, L-I-N-K. Say it after me, L-I-N-K, L-I-N-K, fight, fight, wait, 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 I forgot. I'm not coaching football. I almost did USC, US, I'm a USC fan, sorry. My wife worked there for three years while I was in seminary. And you know what? Our first child was born while she was working there. And you know what? Her insurance covered most of it. It was like three bucks for us to have our first son. Of course, it cost more later. So the fight song for me, fight on for old to see because they paid for my baby. I had student tickets, too. I went to a lot of USC games. Oh, I could go on and on, and maybe I will. But link, what does that mean, link? First, you, you list not more than three people, but a couple of people that you know that you hope will have a relationship with Christ who don't right now. You just list them. And when you list them, you begin to pray for them, specifically, that they'll come to know Christ. Spend some time doing that. Pray for them. Look at that list every day if you can and just kind of see what happens. Then that's what you do is you not just pray for them and forget them. You know, that's how many Christians do it. They hear the story, but they're kind of bored, and the person shares their heart with them. You say, I'll pray for you, <laughs> and you never do. It happens. So you don't just pray for them and nothing else. You initiate a deeper relationship and see where it goes. Maybe have coffee. If it's a son or daughter that you're worried about, when you talk on the phone with them, just spend some time listening, caring while you're praying. Initiate a deeper relationship even with those that are closer to you, so L-I. And notice response. Pay attention. You may have figured this out already, but both me and my two boys have what's known as attention deficit disorder. I never knew I had it until I'd been preaching for about 10 years. ADHD. Oh, that's why you can't stop moving. That's why people can't follow your thoughts. You know, all kinds of things. But it was really cool to come to an understanding that we could control it for all our boys, and it's been cool. And it doesn't have to be with drugs, but it can be. And that's a whole other sermon series. Another rabbit trail, Sam. But the reality is you've got to pay attention. You've got to notice. And finally, you know the answer. You know, when they ask, and they will, you know the answer. Sometimes it doesn't get that far, but what at least it does is you find yourself in deeper and stronger relationships with people who maybe aren't following Jesus. One of the things that happens in the American church all too often is this kind of holy huddle syndrome where we get together on Sundays and we talk about the gospel, but we don't live the gospel or say, or say the gospel in our everyday lives. So the only witness that we have for those around us is the empty driveway on Sunday morning or Saturday night or whenever you go to church. Is that the only witness in your life? Do you have someone you need to start praying for? And that may be helpful. 
There are other pastors that talk about walking across the room and initiating conversations with somebody. Another pastor talks about the purpose-driven life. I'm not going to name them because they're both already so well-known. And that's all great stuff. But I don't think the passage is just about that. As I've already indicated, I think this passage is about discipleship. I think this passage is about Jesus beginning to make disciples with these first five. You know, the reality is we don't make disciples. Jesus does. When we talk to someone, there's three people involved. The two people that are talking and, of course, Jesus who's with us. Remember? God with us, Emmanuel. So Jesus is going to be involved in this thing if you engage in whatever you engage in in terms of sharing the faith. But mainly, this has to be about your discipleship and my discipleship. You know, I've had the privilege of leading people to the Lord from time to time, and it's never been about me having the right technique. (laughs) It's always been about something else. And one of the most really graphic illustrations of this and one of the fastest conversions I've ever seen happened when I was preaching a sermon series on the 12 steps years and years ago. Now, mainly in my 40 years, I preached through books of the Bible, but a couple of times I would do different series, and I I don't know how many of you are familiar with the 12 steps, but they use it for drug addiction, any addiction you name, the 12 steps work. And of course, the great addiction all of us have, whether we're going to admit it or not, is we're addicted to sin, (laughs) which means we're addicted to figuring it out ourselves, We can do this. We're addicted to that. Maybe with a little help from our friends, but not necessarily really depending on the Lord of the universe. And so I preached that series, and I got to be friends with the people in the church I was serving at the time. There were several 12-step groups meeting, and one of the sponsors was a friend of mine, and he recommended this person come and see me because he had to rework his, his first three steps, which can be summarized in this way. I can't, but you can, meaning the higher power. So go ahead. (laughs) That's actually the summary of the first three steps of the 12 steps. I can't. You can. So go ahead. So this person comes to me and and shares with me that he's struggling with being dry, that he'd been dry, free of alcohol for seven years. You know who he picked for his higher power? Garfield. (laughs) And Garfield wasn't working anymore. And I had the freedom from his sponsor to talk about Jesus, who is my higher power and who we followers of Jesus know this is the highest power in the universe. So I introduced this. I said, you know, what if you said, after I can't do this myself, what if the you can happens to be the person Jesus Christ? He was on his knees and he was crying and he was asking the Lord into his life like that. I've never seen anything like it. So awesome. And that was the Lord at the right time pulling this man into relationship with him. As far as I know, he's still dry. Isn't that cool? The reality is this text is about discipleship. It's interesting to me that the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. The word discipleship and its derivatives is used 269 times in the New Testament. This text and the Bible is about discipleship. It's all about Jesus and our relationship with him and our relationship with one another as we serve him together. I love the fact that you have it's all about Jesus on your wall. I love the fact that you preach through books of the Bible. It's one of the reasons why I was glad to be part of the teaching team and part of the sermon planning team. But let's look at each of these disciples quickly to kind of see about their discipleship. Who is this Andrew guy? 
But Simon Peter's brother, John mentions that. Simon Peter, the most famous disciple, the one we could call Rock, because that's what his name means. Andrew doesn't want to be in the limelight. Andrew is someone who can get things done. Later on in the gospel, we're going to see that he's the one who solves the problem when, uh, when Jesus solves it. Ultimately, they, they discover that there's 5,000 people and they all want lunch and they don't have much lunch. And Andrew's the one who finds the box lunch and brings it to Jesus. Andrew's the one who gets it done. It's kind of cool. But he doesn't need the limelight. It'd be great to be Andrew's maybe. We talk about Peter, but there's a lot about him in the rest of Scripture. Let's talk about Philip. Philip's the opposite. He sees the problem, but he doesn't think we can do anything about it. He's the one in John's Gospel that says, how can we do this? How can we feed all these people? Can we send them to McDonald's or something, please? Which isn't exactly what he said, but it's kind of what he meant. He, He doesn't always solve the problem. So it's interesting to me that Jesus comes to him, of all five here, and says, follow me. You need to know better. You follow me. And again, I mentioned in the reading that there's a competition between Bethsaida, the name which means literally house of fishing, and Nazareth and other towns around Lake Galilee, Tiberias being one, because they're in the fishing business. And a lot of the problems I think we experience in interpreting the scriptures is we make the assumptions that these disciples that were called by Jesus were all penniless and hopeless and they just didn't really have much going. And that's really not true. They were businessmen. The fishing business in Lake Galilee was a big deal in the eastern Mediterranean. They spent time working hard, making a buck, so to speak, and providing for their families. So when Jesus calls and tells them to follow me, they give up a lot to follow him. And Philip is probably a fisherman along with the rest. What about Nathaniel? Now, this is interesting. Jesus is basically saying Nathaniel is honest. And Jesus gets his attention by saying, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. And under the fig tree, he was probably studying the Torah or the law. That's what they did. And he was probably memorized most of it, kind of knew his stuff. And so when he says that, and he knows that Jesus saw him there, he says, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. That's a big statement. But Jesus goes fuller. He calls himself the son of man. Which, by the way, in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, this is how Jesus most often refers to himself. And sometimes we're mistaken about it. We think it means, oh, he's just like us. He's the son of man. It's not what it means. In part, it means that. But in full, it's a quotation or a, a reference, really, to Daniel 7, where the son of man comes in glory to what? Rule the world. So he's making an extreme claim about himself. The son of man, and you will see the angels and, and everyone else ascending and descending, a little bit like Jacob's ladder. It's a revelation that Jesus has divine authority, and more than that, he's divine. He makes the claim in a way that we don't quite get, but it's certainly a claim. So where am I getting to with this? Each of these disciples, I'm sure, had a testimony about how Jesus met me. Nathaniel said, he showed me things I would have never guessed. Philip said, he finally made me do the right thing. Basically, you need to hear this. Jesus wants you. He loves you for you. Remember, God so loved the world, including you. So you be you following Jesus. 
End of sermon. Let's pray. No, it's not going to be. I was not brought up to be a follower of Jesus. And quite the opposite. My dad, kind of the epitome of a self-made man, um, his parents and he moved to California near the end of the Great Depression in the, what's called the Dust Bowl. And his dad and mom opened a restaurant in the Atwater District in L.A. And his dad and mom separated. And when my dad was 11, his dad died. But my dad was a guy who pulled himself up by bootstraps his whole life. He was in the National Guard during Korea. He drove a truck. Uh, he became a police officer, ultimately, and then later an investigator, um, insurance investigator for Allstate, which he hated. Um, and then he got a job for the last 20 years of his life, a heavy machinist operator making asphalt. <laughs> Amazing. But my dad didn't bring me up to believe in God. My His sister, my Aunt Betty, went to church and occasionally would dra- drag my sister and I to church, which, by the way, I discovered later my parents loved that because Sunday was my dad's one day off, and I really won't go into detail what I think they were doing on Sunday morning. But let's just say they loved each other all their married life. My mother died this past fall. They'd been married 70 years. And they got married when my dad, <laughs> he was turning 21, and his, his mom had to sign back in the day for them to get married in 1951. Wow. He's still with us at 90, uh, and we talk almost every day on the phone. But the reality is I wasn't brought up to believe this stuff. What happened to me was, was football, basically. It's kind of what got me through high school. I mentioned I had ADHD, so I had trouble concentrating, but I played football for a 4A school in Glendora, California, and we were at one point the champions of the Sierra League and one game away from being the Southern California champs. I'm bragging right now. This is 1969-1970, Glendora Tartans, sons of the Tartans, answer our call. Onward to victory, never to fall. I could go on. You probably don't need me to do that. But football was what got me through. That's why I wanted to coach football. And what happened to me is I went out for football. I was a history major ultimately and a PE minor. And I went out for football at Citrus Community College. And just before the season was to start, the last scrimmage, I got injured. (laughs) Really bad. It took a year to recover. And during that year, I had noticed my senior year, the year before that, that my best friend, a guy named Carl, had become a Christian. And what happened almost immediately is he became the designated driver for our group. I will not go into detail about that. And I just watched him change. I mean, he was a different guy. And I really liked being with him. And he's the guy who invited me to go to the college group after my injury. They met on Tuesday night, so you know why I went there? There were some really cute girls there. My wife, Kathy, was one of those cute girls. Woohoo! Sorry, I digress yet again. But I started reading this translation of Scripture, the good news for modern man. It's just a contemporary translation in plain English. I don't know if it's still out or not anymore. But I kept on reading it, the New Testament, just from cover to cover. And this Jesus guy just intrigued me. He was so different. And the behavior of so many of these college students who were followers of Jesus was like my friend who invited me to that group. And I eventually ended up on my knees with a Presbyterian pastor asking Jesus to be Lord of my life. That's why I ended up a Presbyterian pastor. So 
that's my story. My dad, by the way, did not become a Christian right away. I, I came back from this retreat where I'd given my life to the Lord, and I told him how excited I was that this was all true. And he said, it's a bunch of, ah, you can fill in the blank. I didn't cuss. But we were going round and round about that for years. What I finally ended up doing with my dad, because it, you know, it was always difficult at meetings, because I first I was going to be a teacher, which he didn't see any money in that. And then when I became you know, a preacher. I went to seminary and became a preacher. He says, why on earth do you want to do that? Some of the worst people I know are preachers. But I became one. And we moved up to the Bay Area from Southern California, and we didn't see mom and dad as much. So I started praying for my dad. I said, the best thing I'd do is just keep praying for him and talking to him. And we were fine. You know, they came for Christmas a few times. He attended church a few times. I didn't like it, but he was there. In 1984, my mom and dad were struggling with the empty nest syndrome. Both my sister and I were married, and they were grandparents. But my mom and dad, who got married quite young, my mom was still 17, um, they were having a lot of arguments. And my dad would call me complaining about my mom. I can't believe what your mother's done now. I go, well, Dad, I can't really help you there. <laughs> you know, and I would listen. So I get a call, August of 1984, and it, it's my dad. And he says, I wanted you to know that your mom and I have been seeing Walter, who's, by the way, the guy that led me to the Lord. Uh, and I started reading the scripture. And today I was mowing the lawn and I had a Walkman. Do you remember Walkman? And I was listening to classical music. Classical music. I mean, I'm not a classical music guy, but it's great music. He said, and I gave my life to Jesus. Whoa. And, you know, my mom and dad never looked back. Before I knew it, they were in a small group at my home church. They were part of Navigators. To the day she died, my mother was a believer in Jesus Christ. And as she was dying, I, I'll never forget this. She said to me, will you pray for my healing? Either take me to heaven or heal me, Lord. I don't like this in-between stuff. <laughs> she wasn't digging her deathbed. But I know where she is now. And I'm glad I know where she is. And I know where she is because it is all true. But Jesus calls us to be disciples, meaning we keep growing. We keep learning. We keep listening. We keep working. Now, some of you are thinking, hey, this is kind of cool because he hasn't told me that I have to go out and share my faith, right? And, and your favorite quotation may be from St. Francis of Assisi, who, by the way, is the founding person of the Franciscans who kind of run our mission. And they're a great group of people, so don't get me wrong here. But this is my least favorite quote, quote from St. Patrick, from St. Francis. Preach the gospel at all times, he says. If necessary, use words. We love that quote because we don't want to use our words. But the reality is this text teaches us to use our words, both in questioning and in declaring that it's true. Disciples will use their words. My friends, it is all about you being you and following Jesus. And I want you to hear that. That's why I'm going to say it so much. Because so often it's my favorite person. I want to be like that person <laughs> and follow Jesus. And of course, preachers, I want to be like that preacher and follow Jesus. God wants you to be you. Now, he's going to transform you. You're going to be better. You're not going to be perfect in this life, but you're going to be better. 
but he wants you. And I don't want you to miss that truth because sometimes we do. We really do. So don't miss it. But he wants to be you being you following Jesus. Do your neighbors and friends know that? Do people in your life who aren't followers of Jesus know that you follow Jesus? You know, I, I love the way that Crossroads describes it. It really is all about Jesus. I love the way that you guys are going through books of the Bible. And I hope some of you will take up the opportunity to be part of that larger group, also following up on the messages, but also become a part of a small group. You being you, following Jesus means interacting authentically with other Christians. You are called to be authentic and interact. You're not called to be authentic by yourself. You know, the church is about people. It's not about a building, any building. The ecclesia is not a building. It's a people of God meeting in whatever church you are part of. And it's about the people of God meeting together, being who they are, following Jesus. Period. Exclamation point. Now, I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Well, I hope you stick around. I hope you do stick around and become a follower one day. But that's not my choice. It's really God's choice. But you got to know he's after you. <laughs> kind of scary, huh? <laughs> one philosopher calls him the hound of heaven. That's a little scary, too. Is he a doperman pincher or a German shepherd? Or maybe a poodle? I don't know. He's a hound of heaven. He's looking for you. But you need to be able to say, yeah, I want that. And he'll honor that. Some of you have been Christians for a while and are disciples. And maybe you're real excited about what's going on at Crossroads. I am too. But you need to know churches go through cycles. And there's all kinds of reasons why people come to church. You need to ask yourself the question, why am I coming to church? Why? And see what that answer might be for you. Am I coming to church to serve God in this context and to serve God in my daily life? Or is it just an empty driveway and I come like I come to any other meeting? Ask yourself those questions and know it is about you being you following Jesus. Join me in a word of prayer. Great and majestic God, I ask your blessing on this particular church. And I'm so grateful to be a small part of it in the sermon planning team and, and part of what's going on here at Crossroads. But I also know, Lord, you're the Lord of the whole church. So I do pray that as Crossroads continue to, continues to find its way, that, that Crossroads would be the place you're wanting Crossroads to be more and more. And Lord, I pray for the people in this room who perhaps don't yet know you. It really is as simple as each one saying, Lord, I can't do this by myself, but you can. So would you go ahead? And you might say it this way, if you're not a follower yet, Lord, I want to be a follower. I can't do this by myself. Lord, I know you can, and I trust more and more that you can. So would you go ahead? I want to be your disciple, Lord. Would you be my Lord? And Lord, if you Pope folks, if you thought that or if you pray that uh, and you want to talk to somebody, please feel free to do so. There's people available, and I'd be happy to chat with you as well. If not, Lord, 
I pray for this church. I, I pray that we continue to see the growth that you're bringing to Crossroads and to this valley. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.